The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University, Chicago, is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for spring 2024 include the annual Newman Lecture, given by political scientist Jason Blakely, who will discuss his conversion experience, a celebration of the great Catholic jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams in a series of events featuring Deanna Witkowski, and the annual Cardinal Bernadine Common Cause Lecture, featuring Cardinal Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for Saints and Sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy Ash Wednesday, My Ashley. feast day. It is your feast day. That's a good point. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Until I was saying happy Ash Wednesday, mm-hmm. Ash, that, that's a tongue twister there. Your ash still looks pretty good. We just Does came it, out I of haven't mass. even looked in the mirror. I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I always feel like there's a trap on Ash Wednesday because you get the ashes and every and then every single time I cross myself I like right where the ashes is where I put do you touch your forehead when I, you cross yourself? I noticed that during mass today I was like going up to do the side of the cross at the end of mass and I was like mm, don't touch and then I was like was that oh, like sacrilegious? That means it yeah, it like means it I care count. more about yeah. like not smudging my ashes than making the sign of the cross. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I think that means it doesn't count Gosh. if you didn't touch your forehead. Um, but the good news is the ash looks great. Thank you. Um, so Thank happy you. Lent. You you have the nice little, uh, what do you call that, curly hair thing going on. It's obscuring your ash. I do have it to. It just looks uh, like a shadow. <laughs> I, I have to go. Uh, I hold my hair back yeah. uh, when I go get my ash, which um, <laughs> I feel like is important to do if you've got any kind of bang situation mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just awkward for the person. Yeah. So, yes, it is Ash Wednesday. That means what? What, we're, what are we drinking, Zach? That means nothing today. Um, so, as is our custom, we abstain from alcohol on the show during the season of Lent. It was, a, it was mandated by our former uh, editor-in-chief, Matt Malone. And I, he's gone now. And so we talked about kicking that habit. But it feels, it feels right. Yeah. No, so. it definitely does. Uh, so no drinks. I just um, feel bad for all the guests that come on the show during Lent because they're like, oh, what are you guys drinking when when, when I come on? And we have to tell them nothing. Yeah. Uh, but well. Easter Monday, we're, we're going to just bring it all back. <laughs> um, and also, let's talk about what we're giving up. We'll do it like less seriously now. I know you want to talk about it. And as one friend speaks to another, but you had the great idea of writing an article or having an article written by everyone of 101 things to give up for Lent. Yeah, I just feel like people, you get to Ash Wednesday and it's like, oh man, I know there are things I could do, but I just need something to get the uh, the ideas going. Yeah. And so this was a super fun listicle to watch. Uh, people were like staying late after work contributing to it, which was a ton of fun. Did you have any favorites from that list of 101 things? The favorite one that I contributed, and it's not something I feel like I need to do, but I want to tell other people to do it, is to stop taking pictures on your phone. <laughs> because I just, I, as I say in the piece, I like get so sad when I'm at a beautiful place and I just see people looking at it through their phone. And so I want to like introduce people to the beauty of just being present in the moment when you see something beautiful. You sound like junior year Zach. <laughs> Philosophy major yeah. telling people to stop being so addicted to their phones. You know what the result of that was? I have no pictures of my study abroad. So 
Take it with but a grain great of salt. Memories. Great, yeah. Do I? I don't know. My memory's shot. I'm like 31 now. Um, I contributed. I don't know if I'm going to stop doing it. Uh, fidgeting with my wedding ring. My spouse Amanda would greatly appreciate that. It's just I don't know what else I'm supposed to do with my hands. If not that, <laughs> there are some other other really good ones. I'm trying to think. Uh, putting your phone in grayscale. Mm, yeah, a lot of technology-focused ones. Yeah, getting rid of push notifications, mm-hmm. uh, limiting social media time. Those are always helpful. We're not going to say what we're doing for for Lent until the end of the episode, but uh, we will link to this list. If you're listening, you're like, ah, dang, I still haven't picked something, even though it's a few days in the Lent. We've got 101 ideas for you uh, from America Magazine, so click that link in the show notes. You know what I'm not doing for Lent? What's that? Exodus 90. No, you're not. Neither am I. But we do have a fantastic conversation about it this week. Yeah. So we're talking to Terrence Sweeney. He's an assistant teaching professor in the Honors Program and Humanities Department at Villanova University. And he recently wrote an article for America's website about this program, Exodus 90. Maybe you've heard about it. It's it's tied to Easter and Lent. So it starts, it's a, a regimen that starts 90 days before Easter and involves things uh, like fa- fasting from alcohol, limiting television taking cold showers. Uh, it's it's a pretty ascetical experience. Uh, not for me. I'm not strong enough or I don't have remotely the amount of self-discipline necessary. But I know a lot of people in my life who have done it. My father-in-law is a big fan. Um, he's got a, a, a men's group that does it and they have a good time. So Terrence wrote this great article. It's called Fasting, Praying, and Working Out, What Exodus 90 Gets Right and Wrong About Asceticism for Men. So we get into... Uh, what we think Exodus 90 is doing right, a couple things we were not so hot on, so to speak. So stick around for that conversation. And in Signs of the Times, we're going to be talking about some representation of Jesus in both uh, commercials and in higher art. That's right. But before that, we have a few words from our sponsor this week. Are you searching for a meaningful way to get closer with Jesus this Lent? Well, let me introduce you to a fantastic opportunity, Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherslick. Their podcast is quickly gaining popularity, offering daily reflections on the Catholic faith through the rosary. Each day, Dr. Mike dives into a different topic, guiding listeners in meditation while praying the rosary alongside a global community. In just under 20 minutes, you'll experience scripture, meditation, and the rosary, all designed to fit seamlessly into your daily routine. Whether it's during your morning coffee or maybe your morning commute, it's a wonderful chance to start your day with faith and reflection. And you can easily find them on your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or visiting their website at dailyrosary.net. Don't miss this chance to enrich your Lenten journey and strengthen your relationship with God. Join them on Daily Rosary Meditations today. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, we are very excited to bring back to the show O'Hare fellow Christine Lenahan. Welcome back. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you and break down this kind of crazy story coming out of Spain about a Jesus that has been deemed too risque for for the public. Um, But we also would be remiss if we didn't talk about there, there was a lot of Jesus during the Super Bowl this weekend. Did you watch? I only watched the tail end of the Super Bowl, so... Oh, that's right. You had, like, restaurant reservations, didn't you? I did. I did. This is a prime time to make them in New York, because if you're not that big into the Super Bowl, nobody's really booking out nice places, so... That's so smart. Um, Ashley, we watched it together. Yeah, yeah. So there were two ads from the He Gets Us campaign. This debuted last year. Um, and this year, the, the the ad that's getting a most, the most attention um, is, is a foot washing ad. So it has these pictures of various people 
washing each other's feet. So there's a Latino cop washing the feet of a young black man. There's a woman washing a girl's uh, feet outside what looks like it's an abortion clinic. So it shows all these images and then it ends with these, you know, very bold words. Uh, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. And it, like last year, caused a lot of strong reactions. I think we talked about this last year when it came out. I think generally we're fine with it. I know people have lots of like strong opinions about what are they trying to sell me? Who funded this? What have they funded in the past? But look, honestly, like Jesus isn't a hateful person and Jesus loves his enemies. I think generally is a positive message to put into the world. And I'm okay with millions of people watching that alongside Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. But this story got us thinking about another Jesus controversy that is happening in Spain, which you've been writing about for America, Christine. Could you just like Take If you haven't heard about this, the, the quote-unquote sexy Jesus controversy, could you unpack what's happening for us? Yeah, of course. So in Seville, Spain, uh, in their Holy Week kind of preparations, they commission an artist to do what they call Holy Week posters, kind of like an invitation to people in the area to you know participate in Holy Week celebrations. They have a parade, things like that. And this year, they commissioned an artist, so Luciano Garcia Cruz, to paint a uh, depiction of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And he modeled it based off of his son in what people are saying is a very youthful, kind of clean looking idea of of Christ. And people are up in arms about it. They said this was a sexualized depiction of Jesus, that he looks effeminate, not masculine enough, that he doesn't look like he had suffered. And so there have been petitions around the city to have the Holy Week poster kind of revoked or taken down from the places where it's displayed. Yeah, I, I'm looking at it now, and I I don't think this is any more risque than many Jesuses I've seen in in medieval <laughs> paintings, or, Renaissance art, or even like a crucifix in a church. Like these, there's often just a loincloth there. And mm-hmm. I will say the only the only criticism that I think carries any water is that like he has minimized the wounds on Jesus's body that the, you can almost not tell that they're there and you know part of our theology is that he was resurrected with with the wounds in his hands and his sides but that said he is pointing at the wound on his side so kind of looks like jared leto too i don't yeah. know if that's like doing yep. anything for i people. wonder if it's the blush that's put kind of on the mm. like the cheeks um people are saying it kind of almost looks like he's wearing makeup he has like lashes and like highlighter and blush on on the high points of his face so maybe that is giving like jared leto met gala kind of vibe and that's what you're drawing it from yeah i don't know and so is this just like a classic case of people get mad online and complain about it really loudly or is there something being done about it is it being taken down well there's a petition i think it is about an online petition an online petition twenty three thousand signatures um calling for the council of the brotherhoods which is the the holy week organization to take it down so i wanted to shift the discussion a little bit to what are appropriate depictions of Jesus and which ones are not? I don't know if you, you've come across or if you've been thinking about other times this has caused controversy, if there are any kind of guidelines that you've seen people falling back on. There doesn't really seem to be a set amount of guidelines. There's no formal kind of like code of what artists have to have to follow. Instead, it's more so about how the artist is interpreting it and thus how the viewer is interpreting it too. So when you think of a couple of examples that have existed over the years um, that have kind of, you know, stirred up news stories and things like that, most recently would be 
a depiction of George Floyd as Jesus. I think there's in 2020 in a painting called Mama that was depicted and hung in the hallways of the Catholic University of America. And students, again, same thing, were uncomfortable with the painting being displayed and called for it to be taken down. It actually was stolen twice out of the buildings at, at Catholic. Hmm. Yeah, I remember that controversy. I really don't get the mindset. I, I think of the Catholic faith as one where we're encouraged to like enculturate the faith. Um, and whether that looks like a father painting a Jesus that looks like his son or depicting an African-American Jesus to connect the suffering of George Floyd and those who loved him to Christ, like that just seems like the most normal thing you can do as an artist. Yeah, and I generally try to just be is sort of liberal in the lowercase l sense of the word with these types of things because i think once you start drawing lines between what is what is blasphemy and what is artistic interpretation versus what is in a genuine attempt to represent jesus you get into you get in the hot water in any number of directions and one of the things i've always appreciated about Catholicism, as you were kind of getting at, Ashley, is we're we're encouraged to do this, right? I think that's we're not unique in world religions for our artistic expression, but the way we're encouraged to artistically depict our deity, I think, is kind of unique. You walk into a, not all Protestant churches, but you can tell when you walk in, there's a different vibe between Catholic churches and Protestant ones. Um, and I think I had a priest say to me one time that we're all artists are responding to the question that Jesus asked when, when when artists depict him, which is, "Who do you say that I am?" And every culture, through every in every place throughout history, has done that in one way or another. If anything, you could say like this depiction falls flat because it's it, it looks almost Renaissance like. I don't know that it actually like responds to the current day and age, but it's certainly not blasphemous. I don't think. Right. I know the artist himself said that he had beauty, serenity, and spirituality in mind while while painting it. But you also have to think about the challenge of the artist is they're working on creating a picture of someone who is both fully human and fully divine. Like, just mm-hmm. think about the weight of that task when they're picking mm-hmm. up the paintbrush, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like any actor that is asked to, you know, portray Jesus on the stage or in film. It's like, you can only mess that up, really, because yeah. you're going to make someone mad. Also, it was the artist's son what a weird thing for him for people to be freaking out he's like i just painted my my kid (laughs) and if that if that offends people you gotta don't look up who caravaggio used for for models in his renaissance paintings that's all i'll say all right thanks for coming on christine it's a great piece that we'll link to in our show notes and now stick around for our conversation with terrence sweeney about exodus 90 and male asceticism Joining us from Philadelphia is Terrence Sweeney. Terrence is an assistant teaching professor in the Honors Program and Humanities Department at Villanova University. Welcome to Jesuitical, Terrence. That's great to be here. It's good to, good to be with you. How warm was your shower this morning? <laughs> it was uh, um, lukewarm. Actually, my, the temperature goes up and down in my shower. so I Oh, yeah. I, do, I, I have one of those, too, where you yeah. have to hop in, It's like hop fasting out. and feasting in the course of a shower. <laughs> yeah. How no, appropriate. How appropriate for our conversation today. Uh, really thrilled to talk to you about um, a piece you recently wrote in America called Fasting, Praying, and Working Out What Exodus 90 Gets Right and Wrong About Asceticism for Men. And at the outset of this, we should all, I think we got to say, like, none of the people on this call have participated 
in Exodus 90. We're going to get to what that is here in a second, but yeah. so it's a bit of an unfair fight in, <laughs> in some ways. Um, but maybe you could just start by explaining what what is Exodus 90? Why did this pique your interest? Yeah, I actually found out the first time about Exodus 90 at a bar uh, when I was with somebody who, was, who normally was drinking beer. And I said, why, why, aren't you, why aren't you drinking beer? And he said, I'm doing Exodus 90. And I had no idea what he's talking about. And so, you know, I talked to him a bunch about it and uh, learned some more. And it's a kind of spiritual ascetic practice uh, meant to last 90 days. It ends on Easter. It's just for men, uh, not just like the hair product, but, uh, <laughs> but spiritually just for men. And uh, it's this kind of practice of prayer, uh, prayer expectations, fasting, which includes, uh, per our earlier comments, uh, cold showers, uh, no beer, uh, a lot of fasting from technology. Uh, at least in earlier iterations included some level of fasting actually from different forms of reading. I don't think they still do that. but uh, So it's just kind of aesthetic practice, but it's it's not it's loosely connected to the calendar of the church because it ends on Easter. Uh, but it, it starts 90 days ahead of time. And thus is not quite attached to uh, that lovely season we call Lent. Okay. So before I looked into what Exodus 90 was, I kind of like the stereotype I had of it was kind of a, a spiritualized workout program for men. Um, but like going to their website and seeing what their purpose is, it's, it's very much tied to freedom, which I guess I should have gotten from the title, Exodus. It was all about uh, freedom from Pharaoh. And what they say is like, this is really about freeing men from different idol, like idols of whether that's idolizing sports or alcohol or things like that. So what what do you see as the purpose of this? If it's, you know, if people are wrong to be like, oh, this is really just about like getting fit before Easter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually really a rich part of it, this idea that Exodus 90, just as the original Exodus leads you uh, the Hebrew people out of slavery uh, in a kind of you know spiritual reading of that pa- uh, text. The practice of Exodus 90 leads us out of slavery to all kinds of sin and idols. Uh, and that, you know, there's that's that connect- connection to Lent. I mean, the primary text in the Office of Readings for Lent is Exodus, right? Uh, so the church has long held this kind of strong connection uh, between being freed from sin and the practice of Exodus. And fasting is something that does that, whether it frees you because you become less attached to a thing that isn't necessarily bad, but you maybe have too much of an attachment to, or it frees you from something that is actually bad, right? Um, uh, a sinful action. And so that's, I think, a big part of what it is. It's the training is not uh, is, it's not a workout regimen in, in the sense that you're not necessarily lifting weights, although a lot of men will do that connected to exercise. A lot of men I know who have done it, there'll be some level like once a week getting together to do physical exercise. But that the real reason is to kind of train yourself so that you're freed from you know, your addiction to many, many items. And I think it's one of the reasons why technology is a big, even though Access 90 is an app you can get on your phone and it's all over the internet and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's meant to, one of the things it does is free you from constantly being on the television, constantly being on your phone. I don't think it's in dispute that modern men today do have problems with a lot of these things, or a lot of them do at least. Uh, everybody does. Everyone uses their smartphone. I don't know a single person that is happy with their relationship with their smartphone. And this is targeted primarily at, married men. Is that correct? That's a good question. No, I do think a lot of single men do it, but there is a, a very strong ethos of, of becoming better husbands. So there, a lot of men who do do it, they are married. Um, and the idea is they actually they have like little readings for women whose husbands are doing it, like what to do when your husband won't watch TV with you and won't drink Chardonnay with you and et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> and taking cold showers and miserable. Um, <laughs> so, you know, to prepare wives. But I think single men do do it. Seminarians are involved in doing it. So it's not just, but it does lean more towards married men, which I guess statistically, you know, you're talking about adult men doing this. A lot of adult men are married. 
Yeah. And so the three pillars of it are prayer, fasting, and fraternity. And and we're going to get into your critique of replacing the traditional Lenten practice of almsgiving with fraternity. But first, I want to give, you know, like a, a fair spin on that, because I do think community and belonging is one thing that both young men are struggling to find, but then married men also struggle to find <laughs> like strong male friendships outside of family life too. So so why do you think there's such a strong um, emphasis on fraternity? And do you think it takes a healthy approach to trying to build that for men? Yeah, my understanding of general general statistics is that most Americans, uh, male, men and women, report having fewer friends than they used to uh, across the board, really steep declines in the past 20 years. But those declines are often steeper for men. Uh, so 20 years ago, men were reporting having fewer friends already, and now report you know a, a bigger, bigger drop on that front. And that does also often happen with uh, marriage for a number of reasons. And, you know, you get married, um, the other person is not your whole world. Uh, that is not the idea of marriage. So it is really good, whether you're married or not, um, as a man and as a woman, to find communities of support. And there's something really good about finding communities of support uh, uh, with uh, both sexes. But there's also something I think really valuable saying, like, sometimes it's good for men to be with men. It's good for women to be w- with women. My wife last night went to a women's reading group. Well, uh, I was not invited. And on uh, Monday, I went to watch The Bachelor with my women. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so where are we as a society are faced with serious problems of loneliness and isolation. Uh, and so programs and initiatives that work to kind of overcome that uh, in positive ways, are they're great. And that's, that's one of the things that you know, I have a friend who lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, who does this. And he has developed this great group. He talks about like sometimes they're like, they'll meet up and they'll just talk, talk about their life and they, and they cry. And it's, it's good for men sometimes to cry. Uh, and if people think that's not manly, then read, you know, the, the Iliad. Achilles is crying constantly and then being very manly. Uh, so, <laughs> well, he, well, he lost in the end. So I mean, yeah, he's yeah. Really the best <laughs> example for men to follow. Most of us do eventually <laughs> lose. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's, that's really good. There's no question. I mean, you know, Pope Francis has written an encyclical on being in kind of the fraternal uh, and sisterly relationships in our lives. And sometimes we need the fraternal and sometimes we need the sisterly and often we need both. Want to take one step back because one of the things this is recovering is this tradition of asceticism within the church. But could you just, you know, briefly define asceticism if that's a word that sounds alien to someone listening right now? Uh, and maybe do a little bit of the history that you touch on in your article about how some of those practices changed around uh, the Second Vatican Council in the 60s and 70s. Asceticism is a kind of spiritual practice and it's an, it is an exercise dear to the heart of. Uh, of Ignatius Loyal himself. So it's often a practice of kind of stripping away, uh, whether that's stripping away things that are actually sinful or stripping away things that aren't sinful, right? So uh, the church generally holds that eating meat is not sinful, and yet we strip that away for certain seasons of the year. And that stripping away is meant to develop really purity of heart, uh, which fundamentally means like a focus on loving God and others, right? Uh, And so this has been a part of the church uh, throughout our history. Uh, This has been something that the church inherited from the Jewish people, and the Old Testament is certainly something that, that Jesus speaks of, um, the need sometimes to combine prayer and fasting. There's a long history of cultural practices connected to this, uh, you know, as for many of us are getting ready for various versions of, of you know, carnival, which just means goodbye to meat, carne vale. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a Latin lesson for the day. Uh, <laughs> Uh, all kinds of practices like this. We, you know, pa- uh, eating of pancakes and eggs before Lent, eating of pancakes and eggs uh, at the end of Lent. Um, yeah, I'm really familiar with the like ways in which we feast. prepare to to prepare to fast. I'm I'm quite good at the feasting part. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of those preparations are pegged to the so you you delight in this good this good thing, eating meats, uh, eating eggs, eating pancakes, um, because you know for a period you're going to give it up. You're not it's not bad these things, but we in giving them up it focuses our, our, us on loving God and loving others. I wasn't there in the 1970s in a number of ways. <laughs> in fact, I did not exist in any form. Um, but and I don't so I don't really understand a lot of the motivation to have separated the church from some of its common communal practices. Why, why are uh, you pinpointing the 70s? Because most of the changes in, in bishops' conferences about recommendations about fasting and abstaining uh, arose in the 1970s. So post-Vatican II. Post-Vatican II, although I don't I don't think they're actually connected to actually reading Vatican II. Um, because what they did is they, they tended to make what had been a communal practice, like basically all Catholics, you know, <laughs> saying, all right, for Lent, no meat for any of us. There's going to be other things each person might give up, but no meat for all of us. So you would have, you know, millions, hundreds of millions, a billion people doing this thing together. Right? Uh, and then throughout the year on Fridays, uh, you would do this thing together. Uh, it's one of the reasons why there's the nickname for Catholics is fish eaters. It's one of the reasons why every year I go to McDonald's during Lent to get their fish sandwich, which is on sale from Ash Wednesday to Easter. Uh, this is not, I'm not being paid by McDonald's, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that what that did was it, it emphasized the, the communal body of the church and the universal call to holiness. So I think there's actually very good reasons in the Vatican II documents to actually say we should double down on this. And I think, I think probably part of the reason the, the, there was a movement away from it was a movement away from legalism and excessive kind of guilt discourse. But I think you can move away from legalism and excessive guilt discourse while maintaining communal practices. Uh, and I, so I think it was a little bit of baby in the bathwater type thing. Although, again, I, I, I mean, I now it's, it's like embarrassing when you talk to anyone from an, another faith that does any kind of fasting. It's like, yeah. oh, you oh, guys. Yeah. Oh, you guys fast, too. It's like, well, kind of like for yeah. the whole for all of Lent. Well, no, not really. It, but but, you know, on the. We, and we get two two small meals. Two and small one meal. meals adds up to one big meal. <laughs> and then our Muslim friends are not eating from sunrise <laughs> sun, to sundown. <laughs> yeah, and I, I so I live in I live in West Philadelphia, and near me there's a is a kind of predominantly Islamic neighborhood. Uh, some really great restaurants in that neighborhood, and one of my favorite places. Uh, often get takeout, or we'll go there. And during Ramadan, uh, they're not open. Like the business is not open until uh, sunset. Um, so that they don't get orders from me <laughs> now that, so they lose money. It's really admirable <laughs> thing to do to say, like, we're going to take this so seriously that we're not actually going to be open until it's time to eat. Uh, and what, what's also amazing about it is when they open, they're packed because it's this rich practice in Islamic faith to say right, after the, you fast all day, I mean, from everything. And then in the evening you get together to eat. And that is just awesome. And we, you know, with fish fries and carnival, like we, <laughs> we used to do those things. And I think we, we lost that. I think trying to recover that would be would be good for the communal life of the church and for our, our spiritual lives. And do you think Exodus 90, whether consciously or or not, is filling that hole for, for people, making this a communal um, sacrifice for men? Yeah, yeah. And in particular in the sense that, although I think, you know, different groups, when they often will, you'll form a group of Exodus 90 guys who are doing it together. They'll do, you know, kind of modify as they need. But there is the idea like we're all doing this. So if you're doing Exodus 90 and you're traveling and you meet some guys doing Exodus 90, uh, you both took a cold shower that morning. Uh, neither of you are drinking beer. You're both reducing uh, your social media and technology usage within the confines of your job. So you're like, you don't have to, I mean, you know, they don't have to do the kind of ritual like, what are you giving up for Lent? And I'm like, I'm giving up 
dark chocolate. Now, I'm still going <laughs> to eat milk chocolate. Just come out. Who are we kidding? <laughs> I'm giving up vermouth for yeah. Yeah, so I can have yeah, just so I can still have a martini mostly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, it, but its popularity does seem to point to a hunger for for something more during Lent than than we are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to some extent, I mean, I think you know the task of of a Christian theologian, uh, which I, I try to be, um, but really for any of us, you know, reading the signs of the times. And this is a sign. This is a very popular program. It has expanded most years. You know, they do a very good job marketing. The marketing works. Like people sign up for it and they're hungry. And I think the job of the the broader church is to see this, to see, you know, a lot of often young men, uh, but not exclusively young men. Um, yeah, my father-in-law did it actually. And he is he's just had like such a good experience with other like men his age doing it, which I just find fascinating because I had the same impression that this was only going to be a like a younger trad thing that was going on. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's uh, it is broader in, in age. Um, and that's that's a sign. And the church should say, how do, how do we support this in, in as much as it's good, you know, reading the science times, seeing the good things and supporting them and seeing maybe some of the negative things and, uh, and kind of managing those or redirecting those. Uh, and I think that's, that's important, um, for, for kind of engaging with Exodus 90. That's what I tried to do. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One of the last like positive things I want to point out, or at least an observation, maybe not positive or negative, but it's happening totally outside of the traditional structures as we understand them in the church, right? So this did not, it's not really parish-based. There are parish groups that will do this sometimes, but it it seems to be responding to a way in which we connect as Catholics that's more contemporary than I think the institutional church knows what to do with. And so the fact you talk about the church observing and responding to it, I don't really think it know, the church knows how to do that since it's sort of outside of our traditional structures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it's a lay led movement, which is, you know, good. It has some endorsements from uh, priests and bishops and others, but yeah, it is largely uh, outside of the institutional church. Um, uh, and that's good, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that are outside the institutional church. Um, American magazine kind of is, uh, uh, I guess you tell me, but, uh, only kind of, I would say (laughs) very much. We're, we're a ministry of the society of Jesus. So only, yeah, yeah. we didn't ask for permission to start Jesuitical, but they could shut us down. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll try not to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So I think that means that, you know, it's for, you know, if if I'm going to upmanage our pastors, uh, it, you know, it means trying to guide it, shape it, reach out to people doing it and then say, wow, you're you're doing something really great. Maybe you could do some, some parts better. And then for ourselves in the kind of work of self-examination, which is a part of a a robust human life and certainly part of a Catholic one, it's like, okay, well, what, what can we do better? 
Yeah. So let's get into some of those. And again, like couching this as like, you know, we're throwing from the cheap seats. This is a group that saw a need and responded to it. But as you said, it you know, no human effort is going to be perfect. So one of the main critiques you pulled out in your article was, as I mentioned earlier, dropping almsgiving from kind of the pillars of this journey. So what's your critique there? Yeah. I mean, again, when when I first was hearing about this program and, and someone said, well, it's about prayer, fasting, and and I was ready. I mean, my brain. I mean, Catholic school, Sister Claire, I was like, they're going to say almsgiving. And then they said fraternity. And I was like, whoa, you just, what about that third word that always goes? This is a classic trio uh, from the early church till now. Uh, and when I was thinking about this more, I was it's troubling. So I, I went to the website and the kind of the way the program describes itself. And it, it doesn't, doesn't really show up in there if you just start combing through descriptions. Uh, so it's not like, oh, it kind of just buried it down. And I think it's a real problem in part one of my favorite readings in Lent is this kind of this very, the very strong connection to these things that ultimately your fasting is almost pointless if it doesn't direct you towards giving. You know, I, this was, I learned this as a kid, the sense that like you give up your chocolate and then the money you save from that, you put into the, <laughs> the rice bowl, right? But that's really great. That's actually a really great lesson. Now I didn't have money for chocolate, so that <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It didn't really work for me, but nevertheless, uh, in theory, that's awesome. Like you sacrifice this thing, which helps you develop spiritually. And because of that, you're able to take that money and give it to people who need more. And that's really what, what fasting is meant to do. And prayer, likewise, in preparing you spiritually, uh, you know, to, to love God, we live our love of God in loving our neighbor. Uh, you know, for Augustine, we can't see God uh, in this life, we, but we can see God in the poor. And so uh, how do we, we uh, show your love for God is real? Uh, by loving the poor. And so I was really taken aback by the kind of absence of that, both in the in the kind of trio they emphasize, which are all good, right? Uh, prayer, fasting, and and uh, fraternity are good, but the fact that almsgiving just poof, disappeared. And there's this, I think, there's a sense in the way they present themselves, the way that Exodus ninety presents themselves, that all these ascetic practices are meant so that you give love back to the people in your life, right? So you are a better man to be able to love your your spouse, your children, your friends, your community. But you're saying that the tradition has been tied to economic, right? Like hard material giving, not just I will be kinder because I have- uh, I will done... do the dishes and help with laundry because <laughs> I took a cold shower. <laughs> yeah, right? There is like a, a almost a giving of, of money. Yeah, it is often giving of money. And certainly that's when I would put a little rice bowl of money as a kid. Uh, it was that. But of course, I mean, I think there's ways in which your your fasting, certainly if it's fasting from certain activities, can give you time uh, to serve others. But I think we want to remember, you know, when Jesus talks about you know, giving giving bread to your, to your children, he says, you know, even the, even the Gentiles do this. Everybody, you know, everybody takes care of their kids. You know, loving my wife is is actually easy because she is really lovable. <laughs> uh, I hope she's listening. Uh, she takes effort <laughs> on certain sense, but it's it's delightful. Right. So, but, but, you know, charity is reaches beyond the kind of our little group of people that we find easy to love. Um, You know, love is really for, for those who are kind of on the margins, for those who are hard to love. You know, if you read Dorothy Day's diaries, she comes back to again and again, it is not easy uh, for her often to, to love the poor, you know, to love the the drunk man uh, who's kind of in her face. What that fasting is meant to do and preparing you uh, to love others. Yes, hopefully it makes you a better husband, a better father, a better coworker. Those are all, these are very good things and we all need to work on it. 
But really, it's preparing you to love, you know, the immigrants, uh, to love the poor person down the street, uh, to love the mother, uh, the, the single mother who doesn't know where to go. And those people are, for many of us, are outside of our immediate circles. And sometimes, depending on circumstances, are it's harder to love them because it takes more sacrifice because sometimes they're strange. I mean, spent time in any homeless ministry. They often are really delightful, but sometimes strange and sometimes scary. Helping an immigrant who, if you are an English speaker like me, can be hard because you don't know what they need. And it's hard to understand. And that's that's where this kind of love is meant to push us so that we're not just you know living out the natural and slightly easier loves of loving our kids or our spouses and our some of our coworkers. Uh, but, <laughs> <Present> <laughs> loving, excluded. You, you know, the poor. Yeah. And I, it, it's probably fair to say that a lot of the men doing this, you know, again, I'm thinking of my father-in-law who I know is listening to this, is one of the, you know, most generous people I know is particularly with how he serves people uh, beyond his social circle. And so I imagine a lot of guys are doing this, but you're, you're saying there's nothing in the curriculum itself that is encouraging that or developing that or facilitating that more the same way it's doing it for prayer and for asceticism. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see, you know, Exodus 90 saying I, part of what you're doing during these 90 days, your men's group is, you know, once a week or however one navigates this, you know, getting down to the the homeless shelter, getting down to, um, you know, the center for where immigrants are trying to get legal advice. If you have some way you can help on that front, where like where you're picking these fasts, you know, from, from technology, and hot showers and going out to people who don't have access to showers and helping them. And I, that, that I think is something that needs to be, you know, made explicit and emphasized in the program. And uh, it's, it's not, at least not in the kind of marketing portrayal, the keywords they're using uh, and, you know, the people I've, I've spoken to. Another one of your uh, critiques is a little more theological in calling it semi-Pelagian. So I know this is one of Pope Francis's favorite, or I guess least favorite, heresies. <laughs> but can you explain to that to us what what that means and and how it applies to Exodus ninety? Yeah, yeah. So we won't go too far into the into the weeds of Augustine scholarship on this front. But Pelagius, long ago in the time of Augustine. There was a kind of, and the tradition that arises from this, the sense of, you know, up by your own bootstraps, uh, kind of working on yourself to making yourself the kind of person you're supposed to be. And so Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, whether it's explicitly developed as a kind of theological vision, as Pelagius did, uh, or a kind of uh, spiritual malady, which I think is often the way Pope Francis is talking about it, is thinking that I, I can kind of do this on my own. And when I succeed, I kind of did this on my own, as opposed to what the psalm, the great prayer of the psalmist, you know, not to us, Lord, but to you be the glory. Um, or Paul, you know, what do I have that I have not received? The tension in Exodus 90 is a tension in any spiritual exercise, because a spiritual exercise involves, it does involve you, in fact, doing things. Um, you are the one giving something up. You are the one who's fa- uh, fasting for something, taking a cold shower, etc. And so the danger is pride. Augustine talks about how pride is the sin that can sneak into good works. You do something good and you think, ha ha, I did something good. And that's, I think, a danger for any spiritual practice. In fact, Augustine had a series of letters he wrote with some monks who were really worried, like, well, we're trying to be better people. Should we stop doing that? And Augustine said, no, no, keep trying to be better people, but recognize the trying itself is a gift. For us in the United States, the socioeconomic security to say, I'm going to choose to take a cold shower instead of I don't have a hot water heater and I have to take a cold shower or um, I'm homeless and I don't have access to showers. So recognizing that just how much we're graced and privileged is really key. Where the, the, the discussion of um, almsgiving is a criticism, that, that I would say I'm cr- criticizing. The discussion of semi-Pelagianism is, is more of a, I guess, a friendly warning. 
you know, as I, uh, they, they reference like, uh, grace extensively on their site. And part of what freeing you is like clearing the blockage that allows grace in. And yet you just, you always need to be careful in any of these kind of practices to avoid a kind of self-referentiality or the legalism. Cause legalism is, is often a sense like if I, I figured out the right rules, I'm living out the right rules. I'm doing this. You're not, it's Christ. <laughs> you know, uh, it's the gift of loving support communities. It's the gift of having socioeconomic security to choose a cold shower. And I think, so it's, this is more of a warning, like be careful guys, not so much. Uh, I, I don't want to be, you know, casting down from my uh, doctrinal heights, the claim of heresy. Yeah. And as someone who loves men, many of my best friends are men. <laughs> you you put seven men's in a fraternity <laughs> uh, group and it's, you know, competition might slip in there. And just... Yeah, usually only bad things happen when we <laughs> when guys get together in those numbers. Traditionally, if you look at yeah. history. I mean, I will say like one of the things that don't doesn't really pass the smell test for me and I can't quite figure it out, is there is this whiff of, it's Lent, but harder, and therefore we're going to do it more, faster, better, stronger, Um, which is, I think, something that would have been attractive to me at one point in my life for reasons that I wasn't proud of at the time. I, You know, like, I'm doing asceticism the most hard, and therefore I am the best, doing the best version of Lent, therefore God is going to love me more. And maybe it's not that explicit, um, in those logical jumps, but I, even in many smaller ways, I see this kind of creeping into my own worldview and it's a constant temptation to like push back on that. And and maybe this isn't a problem for other guys, but I don't know. I kind of feel like it might be. Yeah. I mean, we live in a, uh, I mean, this, uh, I don't know how much excess 90 has expanded beyond the United States, but it is, it's very, very American thing. I think most people doing it are Americans. It's centered in the United States. Um, and you know, we live in a time that is had a lot of tensions and concerns about meritocracy, but you know, you, you, you know, I earned my college degree and my PhD and I did, I did these things and, you know, we have a lot of discourse and sadly this discourse shows up with a lot of Christians, uh, of kind of, um, about, about poverty and, you know, you know, uh, uh, deserving poor and undeserving poor. And I think, so we get this kind of discourse in the background all over the, the uh, our American life of you, you've either earned it or you haven't. And, you know, when you when, when we get to the pearly greats, you know, God willing, and, uh, you know, you, ha- you haven't earned it. Um, that's I mean, Jesus didn't die on the, on the cross just to be like, hey, here's a cool example. Like he, he had to earn it for us. And I think keeping that foregrounded is really important, particularly uh, in the U.S. and I don't know if I want to say particularly for men. That seems I'm not less certain about that, but I can imagine a certain kind of particularly when like you know, men exercising, which I used to do, and then I had three kids. So now <laughs> I, uh, I just uh, I just stopped. No, no, yeah. no, I don't have the kids' excuse yet. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 kids are great. I blame them for all kinds of stuff. I'm tired. I'm behind on work. The kids. You know? um, I recommend them for everybody. You know. <laughs> I want to kind of zoom out a bit. We've talked about uh, what's what's good, what's maybe needs improvement in Exodus 90. But I'm we've talked about how it kind of fills a gap that is left by um, the lack of communal practices in the church. And then I think in Lent in particular, at least for me, like, as you said, the question you always get or ask is like, what are you giving up for Lent? Um, and it, it's a very individual decision and challenge. And, you know, you can complain to your friends about how you miss caffeine, but it, it there's not like the solidarity there. So I'm wondering if we could pick out some things that 
people who aren't going to do Exodus 90 could take from it into their own Lenten practice that would make it a, a more spiritually fulfilling experience. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I mean, thinking about this article and writing it has, you know, reminded me that my own need to recommit to Lent, uh, um, as, which is coming uh, <laughs> very soon. And uh, to, to kind of focus myself on like, okay, I just wrote this article saying like, whoa, guys, maybe this whole like, you know, better, faster, stronger model isn't great. But part of my point is like Lent. And so I want to avoid uh, rank hypocrisy. Uh, so trying to do that a, a more intentionally, I think partially talking to friends, talking to pe- fellow parishioners saying like, hey, what, what if we did this, this meatless thing uh, uh, together again? What if we, you know, what if we do this as a community? Uh, so when we get, when we finish Stations of the Cross on Fridays, you know, afterwards, we don't need to worry about it. We're all going to get soup. So I think thinking about that, like uh, working on in the context of our parishes or our, our, the faith groups we're in, saying, hey, let's, let's try to figure out what we're going to do together. You know, I recognize it's going to vary if you're the uh, if you're a vegan, meatless Lent is kind of meaningless. So in that sense, like find the communal practice, but then that doesn't mean giving up the the personalized practice. You know, what what are what's the idol? What's the the sin? What's the kind of attachment that you have that is pulling you away from loving God and loving others? So the meat thing might be our communal practice, which brings with it all kinds of environmental benefits. So that's that's good, too. Um, but then what's the thing I need to work on uh, to be a person who who loves the marginalized, to be a person who um, does do the dishes uh, in, in my home? If, if you don't, I actually do the dishes. I'm, I'm a good dish, dishwasher. Uh, <laughs> my wife will tell you. Uh, but I fail her in all, the, all the kinds of ways. Thinking about those things, really committing to prayer, I, you know, uh, communal prayer, private prayer. I love the stations of the cross during Lent. I used to, I, when I was a kid, I used, of course, I kind of hated them. I always like thought got to the twelfth station and assumed we were done, and then I was like, "Whoa, there's 14? Yeah, yeah, that always <laughs> yeah. felt like a what? <laughs> Where did that number come from? That's not a, that's not a big number in Catholicism. Yeah. Why fourteen? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think you know, committing to those shared practices, recognizing the need for certain private practices, living these things out together, and then you know, finding a way to serve those who need help, um, whoever they might be, whatever your kind of personal strengths and vocation is to, to do that, but finding a way to do that as a parish, as a person, as a community. And and that's really hard for one person to try to create all those structures in their life to support those things. And so I am appreciative of the way that Exodus 90 is kind of taken it off a lot of people's plates. Part of my, I don't know, hesitation around it is, you know, I belong to a men's group at my parish that for Lent fasts and sets aside that money and donates it com- like collectively to a couple things that we, we meet for prayer during that time. We socialize. Like, so I had sort of a lot of this stuff built in and then it, I, I got the sense it was like, well, you're only doing it for 40 days. But, but did you get the sense that a lot of other people have that? community no no it's but i think there's a there's an opportunity i guess to do it within sort of a more and and this is one of your own critiques terrence is there's a chance to do it within the church calendar and the church life a little bit and it's uh on, on the one hand i praised it for being sort of outside of the church structures a little bit but it could uh be a bit more harmonious with the way we do other things in the church yeah, I mean, parishes are still a great thing. <laughs> you know, uh, I know many parishes have struggled to stay stay open and stay alive. Uh, sometimes, you know, structures in the in church life can be kind of sclerotic. And yet, the great thing about a parish, particularly neighborhood parishes, if that's something that one can find or uh, or however one kind of negotiates parish life. But when you're in a parish, that means you're not going to only be with like minded people. You're going to be with people 
uh, again, depending on the parish, but who run run the gamut socioeconomically. I mean, I'm I'm blessed. I, I have awesome parish, St. Francis Sales, where you know, kind of a big diverse place, and trying to do do things together in that broader picture where it's not just me and 10 guys. I kind of already agree with uh, about most things, but actually doing it with me and you know, a bunch of other people that sometimes I don't agree with, or sometimes they're strange or I'm strange to them, which is probably more likely. Uh, <laughs> that seems really rich. And that's where, you know, sometimes in, in the, in the life of the church, like movements operate as reform movements. I mean, but then the genius of the church is sometimes is finding a way for those parallel movements to really become, you know, parallel movements inside the church. I mean, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Jesuits, they, they didn't start because an office in Rome uh, said, we should have Dominicans, uh, we should have Jesuits. They started as a parallel thing, but they allowed themselves to be kind of deepened into the life of the church. And and in being deepened, the life of the church itself changed. Uh, so I think what Exodus 90 in the American church as a kind of parallel thing, hopefully will allow itself to be deepened into the life of the church to help change the church itself to restore some of these practices, but also to kind of correct maybe some of the, some of the wrong, wrongward ways of things that might operate uh, in excess 90. I did give a pot showers in high school one year. Uh, the effect of which was, I was just way smellier <laughs> for Lent. So uh, more power to all the guys yeah. trying to do that now. Uh, I think, I think I'm going to try it this Lent, if, partially because the article. Uh, all right. I think yeah. money where your mouth is. Yeah, I will not. Uh, good, good. No. <laughs> this will not be a communal penance between you if and I. If we do this podcast again, you know, uh, in the Easter season, I don't know, maybe I would not. I was thinking about this. Like, cold showers could really. I grew up in rural New Hampshire, and cold shower there is unbelievably cold. That was that was one of the comments on your article, and he was like, "Do you know what that would mean for us in the north?" Like, yeah, yeah. Whereas I, when I lived in LA, sometimes there was a cold shower because it was nice. You know? Yeah. Uh, so. You know, it varies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out how cold the cold shower is in the city of Philadelphia. Talk to you in May and you're just going to be <laughs> haggard. And... Yeah, no. <laughs> um, Terrence, we have one final question for you before we let you go. Uh, and we ask all our guests this. And that is, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, there's no yeah, no question. The great, great Bartolome de las Casas. Um, I mean, he is my, one of my great heroes. He's a servant of God. Um, he committed himself to to serving the, the what he calls the smallest and most forgotten to Christ crucified and the indigenous. Um, the first person to spe- really speak out in the Western world against both indigenous uh, coloni- the colonization of the indigenous. He, he condemned uh, this enslavement of Africans hundreds of years before basically anybody. You know, he was cantankerous sometimes, certainly, but he was this brilliant, super committed a man who wanted wanted Christ's message to be brought to people in freedom. If I could. Get somebody on the on the horn in Rome. Bartolome de, la Cas- de las Casas. You yes. were ready for that right away. That was probably the fastest <laughs> someone has ever answered that question on this podcast. Are you like working on? Are you working on his cause or something? No, Do I you mean, just have I, that ready made. Like people. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm, I was very committed. I have a, I have a podcast episode uh, that I did on him as uh, the uh, arguing for him as kind of the original anti-racist, the first kind of theorist about why racism is is wrong. So I've been doing a lot of work. Um, on him, I, I at my desk where I'm sitting right now, I can I can see him. He's right right there. <laughs> now of notes, I, I'm Terrence Jeremiah Sweeney, but I spent one year as a Dominican novice, and my name was uh, Brother Bartolome de las Casas. Uh, so I say he's near to my heart. I mean it. What was hilarious is I you know I can't speak a word of Spanish, so people would meet me like, oh Bartolome. I'm like, oh, no, I'm just I'm just an Irish guy, but I love him. 
Um, Love it. <laughs> All right. So the article is Fasting, Praying, and Working Out, What Exodus 90 Gets Right and Wrong About Asceticism for Men. You can read it at americamagazine.org. Uh, Terrence, is there anything else you want to plug? Sounds like you have a podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's out with the Ministry of Ideas uh, from uh, Harvard Divinity. Uh, yeah, it's called The Medieval Anti-Racist. So it's a great it's a great episode, I think. Uh, if you like the sound of my voice today, well, check out the podcast. You'll get to hear it again. <laughs> All right, we will link to that. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Terrence. I know that I've been going back and forth. I know that I've been leaving you with questions. I know I should, but I don't want to fall. I know if you I have to learn my lessons You go up when I go down You see clear when I go blind When I fall hard, you turn me around Oh, and you go up when I go down You see clear when I go blind And oh, I hope you always be around All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What we got this week, Ashley? Yeah, so as we've mentioned before, we are trying to get on the road this year, and our next event will be in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. We're really excited to be talking to Cardinal Wilton Gregory, and we're a very timely topic, uh, a listening church in a divided nation. So I think we'll get into some stuff, synod, some things, public service and politics in the D.C. area. So it'll be a great conversation. If you are in the D.C. area and want to come, you do need to RSVP. So we'll have that link in the show notes. And then on March 18th, we're going to be at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and having a conversation with the TV newscaster, Carol Costello. Yeah, really excited. So if you're in D.C. or L.A., please come out, come see us. It'd be great to meet you in person. And then I have one quick parish announcement. Uh, this week, America launched its first ever mobile application. So we we have an app now, which is really exciting. It's called The Word. So if you search in your app store, right, it's it launched this week for iPhones, uh, Android. It's coming. I didn't forget about you green bubble people. But I've been working on this for a long time. So really excited to have it see the light of day. Uh, it's a place where we're housing all of the scripture reflections that we write every day. The Word column, which goes back, you know, decades. We're posting historical stuff there. One Minute Homilies, The Preach Podcast. It's supposed to be a place where you can, you know, Find the daily mass readings and then read our reflections on them. So really excited about it, really proud of it. You will link to it in our show notes, but you can also just search America Magazine, the word, and you should be able to find it. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What are we talking about, Zach? Figured a good chance to uh, talk about what we're giving up for Lent, and especially since you haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> I figured we could just kind of process together. Um <laughs> So generally, how do you, how do you approach this? What are you yeah. what are you looking to get so out? It wasn't quite truthful to say I haven't decided completely. I know what I want to I want, which is more silence in my life. And um, oh, I have a good story about this. <laughs> mass is so mass starts at three fifteen here at the office. Ashley walks out of her office, which is just around the corner from me, realizes it's three thirteen, and goes, "Oh, I have two minutes," and walks backwards. <laughs> And I said, are you serious? What are you going to do in those two minutes? Just like not be alone with your thoughts? And she's like, exactly. 
<laughs> so I, I think this is maybe a good one for you. I think so. Um, and last week I talked about how I took up uh, just, I'm not even calling it journal journaling, um, just like writing down a couple of things every day and like setting the bar very low. Like doesn't need to be full sentences, doesn't need to be coherent, not worrying about my handwriting. And the reason this has worked for me is that it was manageable. And so I, I'm trying to like look at just like small incremental things I can do in my daily life to create more time for silence. So like what I'm thinking at this point point is, you know, no podcast until like 5 p.m. Because usually the first thing I do, I wake mm. up, I put on the NPR net app and I listen to the news headlines. And then I am listening to another podcast where I brush my teeth and on the subway. And so I'm just starting my day with you know, noise. It's good. It's good. Does uh, this mean you're not going to record podcasts until 5 p.m.? Because that's going to be a problem. <laughs> no, that does not count. And the other thing I just like another just small step is I, I looked up the... Um, the daily mass schedule uh, at my neighborhood church. And they have a, I think it's an 8.30 mass Monday through Thursday. So I'm going to pick one day. A.M.? Yeah. People do that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm hoping um, on on a day where I'm not coming into the office during the week, I'll, I'll make the attempt to do the, the daily mass as like an extra, extra 30 minutes of, if not silence, at least intentional prayer. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. All right. What about you? I be- So my wife and I usually try to do something together. Um, just, you know. It's nice solidarity. Bring, yeah, solidarity brings us together. We talk about it. Uh, this year we're doing meats and sweets. I, I suggested this partially because of the ring it has. It's like a nice, easy, like mm-hmm. people ask, what are you doing? Meats and sweets. Boom, done. Doing them or not doing them? Not doing them. Okay. Not only eat. No, I'm only <laughs> eating meat and sweets for lunch. No, uh, so for me, the big thing is going to be gummy bears. Love gummy mm, bears. Uh, uh, but I am yeah. trying to give up most And all meats. And all meat, yeah. All days, except for Sundays? Except for Sundays, I am a big believer in cheating on Sundays. So it's also harder. Long-time listeners of the show will have heard this take before, but it's way harder if you relapse once a week. You know, you start getting into a new habit, it, mm. you don't, you, you miss that uh, that sugar rush less and less and less. But if I give myself a, another hit uh, once a week, then, then I'm really going to suffer throughout You're the rest so of strong. the week. You're so strong. I am. <laughs> I am. Uh, so, but that's it. In the past, I've looked for this like grand thing or the super, I, I like search the depths of my heart for all of my weaknesses. And, you know, I don't have to search that deep anymore. I, they're very <laughs> apparent to me. Um, and I, I'm looking for, as you said, something manageable, something, uh, that'll be tough, but also, you know, you don't have to rack your brain for how it connects to how it's going to fix this problem in your soul. Yeah. Yeah, I just you have the rest of the year to do that. Exactly. So simple denial. Go vegetarian. Um, a pescatarian, I think, is what we're gonna do. We're gonna have some fish, but should be yeah, should be good. Hoping to expand my recipe repertoire a yeah. little bit. Cook some non meat. And the things. good news is you can still have cheese. That is the great news. <laughs> do love cheese, just not dessert cheese. Yeah. Can I have cheese if it's not for dessert? Can you have dessert wines? No, okay. I don't think so. That'll okay. be another tough one. <laughs> so listeners, we hope this has been helpful. Uh, we, maybe we've given you some ideas for what to uh, give up for Lent, or at least given you a, a chance to think about uh, or how you're going to think about what to give up for Lent. Even though it's the first Friday, if you're listening, the day it came out after Ash Wednesday, you still got time. No one says that you have to like pick it on Ash Wednesday. And if you don't, then you're just out of luck for the rest of Lent. If you, if you haven't started, start now. All right, I'll get us out of here. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who's also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sandro. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. 
Judge Whitacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>